Lord, you reminded us last week in this chapter that we can only come to you if the Father draws us. And this morning again we see the only those who are granted it by the Father are able to come to you. And so this morning we look into your word and we come in this posture of reliance for you to speak, for you to show us Christ. Spirit, we ask, Spirit of God, speak to us with the word this morning. Let us see Christ. Let us understand the gospel. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we conclude this chapter, let me, um, let's begin this way. Let me offer a brief historical explanation of something that's happened throughout church history, but um, has also happened in our context more recently. So there's a lot of examples. I want to give this one. Let me say also, given that this is an introduction to a sermon, I don't have a lot of time to expand on this. So it's going to be um, maybe not as nuanced as I'd, I'd hoped. So just bear with me. But in the 1940s and 50s, here in the United States, in the United Kingdom, churches began to perceive a struggle they were having to connect with broader culture. Okay. Rather than having a culture that was clearly shaped by Christian teaching, which was the perception of many churches prior to that, whether or not they had that is a different discussion. Their perception was that they, they had that prior. Now the culture itself was being perceived as shifting away from Christian doctrine. And so a lot of people from within church leadership in the West believed that attracting an emerging generation would be an, an answer, part of a solution to this issue. After all, uh, the youth were seen as the trendsetters, here we have a group of people that if we attract into the life of the church, this emerging generation will be the easiest route to connecting us back into culture. And so from this started various movements like Youth for Christ that sought to target students through big concerts, events. As these movements grew, there started to also be a, a shift in ideas. Not across the board, right, but generally a shift in ideas, a shift to a way of talking about church that was driven, driven by giving people what they want rather than what they need. Okay, so uh, the church growth movement came out of this, was founded on principles that very, very much over time started to reflect Western business models. And, you know, I don't want to throw shade on church growth movement. There's a lot of good that came from people taking seriously the Great Commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And really beginning with sociologists who, and missiologists who wanted to... Uh, take the gospel and make it uh, easier for people in broader culture to understand, contextualize gospel. So there's a lot of good that happened, a lot of evangelism. And yet, so much of it again shifted to these Western business models. Identify what the consumer wants. Find ways to uniquely address those wants from within your church and your church will grow. And because people want the kind of music and programs and events that will entertain families as they come to church. We should give people a kind of edutainment, one-part education, three-part entertainment, so that our churches will grow. And as a result, a lot of church life in the West really turned toward like a, what I've called before, youth group 2.0 mindset, in which we attempted to take really a failing model for youth ministry, you know, 
Um, not the only model of youth ministry, but a failing model, one that you know, the jury's not out, it's not deliberating, it's come back and made its ruling. It's a failed model that we've attempted to oftentimes apply to the entirety of the church. So missiologist Thomas Bergler writes an account of how part of this took place in his book, The Juvenilization of American Christianity. I commend it to you. So juvenilization is really the perfect word for the term that he's describing. And by it, he means this. He says the, it's the process by which the religious beliefs, practices, and developmental characteristics of adolescence became accepted as appropriate for Christians of all ages. Now, Burglar also says here, listen, it's important in our tone not to just be throwing stones here. The juvenilization of American Christianity has done a lot of good. It's, it's breathed a lot of life and vitality into the church. Like, it is a good thing that we have conferences where thousands of young people come together for worship and to hear the word. That's good. But he also writes that it's become a Christianized version of adolescent narcissism. In other words, he says, there's come this point in which church life in the West has become all about us. And, and so pressing in a little further still, this is why we've also seen throughout this time a distrust, I would argue, of the means for ministry that God has given the church. You know, because the way the scriptures describe spiritual growth, and I talk about this a lot, but the way that the scriptures describe spiritual growth simply does not make any sense in a Western business model of church. Remember, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly to surrounding culture. He says, for the Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. He continues, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He says, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So preaching Christ crucified, Paul says, it's a stumbling block. It's seen as folly. It's foolishness to the culture in which we live. Naturally, foolishness to our ears because of sin, as we'll see in the text this morning. And that's exactly why more and more in Western culture, we've pivoted away from preaching. It doesn't make any sense in this Western business model of church. It's not what the people want. I mean, if there's one thing that really has the capacity to offend its hearers, it's the word of God. And therefore, the preached word of God. So it is said, it can't grow a church, it can't change hearts, it can't make disciples. What do we have to say about all this? Well, let's just say that here in John 6, Jesus is confronted with much the same problem. So I said tongue-in-cheek a few weeks ago. We would entitle this message, when we get to this section of John 6, an interesting strategy for church growth. Okay. Because it starts, you know, the chapter starts with this huge crowd, like 20,000 people pursuing Jesus. By the end of the chapter, the more that Jesus speaks, the less people are in this crowd to where it, finally, he's addressing the 12. And I say, you know, I say it's tongue-in-cheek to call this an interesting strategy for church growth. Because, listen, we're not, we're not reading the Gospels in order to find some ministry methodology from Jesus to employ in our churches talk about that a lot. Primarily we read the Gospels to see what Jesus did for us that we could never do for ourselves, that by believing in him we might have life, right? Uh, but Jesus does have something to teach us here as it relates 
to the reaction from broader culture to the message of the gospel. So in order to make sure I'm not misunderstood, and you can see this reflected in the liturgy packet this morning, I decided to, to shift, title the sermon, Gospel Offensiveness, What It Is and What It's Not. Because here Jesus really is teaching us on the offensive nature of the gospel. He has something to say about what we should be expecting from the world around us as we proclaim the gospel to the world. And he also has something to say about whether or not we're able to somehow manipulate the growth of our churches by making the message of the church easier on the ears of the hearers, okay? Somehow more in line with the surrounding culture. So we'll really see this in four exchanges in the narrative. There's something of a back and forth here as John 6 concludes. So four exchanges, beginning with the reaction of the disciples. The reaction of the disciples specifically to the teaching of Jesus over the last few sections of text. So starting in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So let's back up. Remember our context a little bit. You have this crowd of 20,000 tracked Jesus down because of the signs that he was performing. Specifically then attracted and continuing to chase him down because of this miracle of taking the five loaves, feeding 5,000 men and their families that are there, giving them this bread. And Jesus uses this opportunity to teach them that he's the bread of life, that he's the true and better Passover, that he's bread from heaven, he's the true and better manna, that he truly satisfies, that he's come to be offered up for them. And then last week, that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, that is to say, unless they come to him and believe, they will have no life in him. So do you remember that from last week? Just like the food we eat has died so that we might eat of it and live, Right? And just like if we neglect eating that which died so that we can live, if we don't trust that it can provide adequate nutrition so we do not eat, or if we think it will poison us so we do not decide not to eat anything, we will not live. Jesus has come to die so that we might live, standing in our place at the cross. By eating of him, by believing on, on what, what he's done for us on our behalf, that we could never do, coming to him and believing, we can have life. If we neglect believing in he who died that we might live, if we don't trust that he can provide salvation, if we think we can find that salvation elsewhere, if we think he's trying to swindle us, so we decide not to come to him and believe, we will not have life. So if you have more questions about that metaphor, go back last week and listen. But now the crowd is, is clearly dispersing because the reaction to this teaching comes not from those that John routinely calls the Jews, those in this crowd who are having this interaction with Jesus, but now it's his disciples. And it's important at this point to differentiate between the 12 disciples who are with Jesus throughout the duration of his ministry and um, this larger group of disciples, the text doesn't specify a number, who've been following his teaching. In other words, do you remember like, as we talked through John's account of the gospel, there's faith and faith, belief and belief, you know, um, the same words used, but there's a kind of faith, right, that's, that's genuine faith, genuine belief in Jesus as he reveals himself. But there's also been a false faith, a spurious faith, a false belief based on what we want Jesus to do for us. Jesus as we would like him to be, okay? 
So we have faith and faith. And in the same way, we also see here in the text disciples and disciples. In other words, we have genuine disciples who follow Jesus on the basis of Jesus' own self-disclosure. Jesus as he's revealed himself to us. And false disciples who are still primarily interested in their own agenda. And that's exactly what we see here in verse 60. Because the text tells us when this larger group of disciples heard Jesus say these things, they said perhaps to themselves, perhaps to one another, not directly to Jesus, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? You know, in other words, here you have followers of Jesus. They don't believe him to be doing a very good job of teaching in a way that's going to onboard a decent amount of followers into the movement. They're looking around and saying, wait a minute, who's going to listen to this? This does not bode well for our movement. If the face of the movement himself says stuff like this, he'll lose everyone within earshot. It's important to clarify the, the word hard, you know. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? That word hard doesn't mean hard to understand, right? It, it, certainly, there's a lot about what Jesus said that they didn't understand. That's not what their expression is. It means once understood, hard to accept, hard to believe, harsh, offensive. That's the idea of that word. What was it about Jesus' teaching that these disciples believed to be so harsh and offensive, so hard to accept? Well, there are a lot of ideas offered here. The commentary is pretty, pretty unanimously outlined four aspects of John 6. A lot of this is just going to be a review from the last few weeks. But number one, why were they offended? Number one, they wanted Jesus for his stuff rather than Jesus as he revealed himself to them. Remember, they wanted physical food. They wanted a political messianic hero, you know, in their midst. They wanted miracles in their midst. And they found it offensive that Jesus wasn't offering that to them, especially after an expectation that this is who the Messiah would be. So let's remember together. This is happening at Passover. Chapter 6, verse 4. That's the context here. The Passover is at hand, okay? And that gives us really the, do you, do you remember the theological context for, for the passage? Jesus is now saying this, I am the bread of life in the midst of Passover. He's showing himself to be this true and better Passover. Now this crowd, initially, they don't disagree with Jesus that he's a true and better Passover. They think they can get on board with that. They, they think this is the prophet, right? The first prophet, Moses, led them out at Passover. So Maybe he is the true and better Passover. Maybe he is this true and better prophet. But the problem was that they had a view of Passover very much like 21st century Americans have of the 4th of July. A nationalistic holiday that stirred up this messianic fervor of someone who would come and topple the Romans. You know, as our esteemed elder chair, uh, Pete Johnson here at GLC has said a few times before, this crowd... They weren't interested in the slaughtered lamb. They wanted the angel of death, you know. They wanted the angel of death, not the slaughtered lamb. They wanted God to come and bring death and judgment to their enemies. They didn't see that they needed a substitute for sin, someone who would die on their behalf. And so they're upset. They, they see this as an offense, that he would present the kingdom as himself, Instead, offered up for them. Number two, they wanted to be their own authority and found it offensive. That Jesus said that they couldn't actually come to genuine faith unless they gave up that authority to him, unless they would relinquish that authority to him. And so given all that, number three, they were offended that Jesus would make these grand claims about himself. 
this fellow Nazarene, being greater than Moses, sent from God, come from heaven, the one who extends life. Like these are all then offensive claims. And then finally, number four, they found the nature of his metaphor to be distasteful, right? To say the least, like eating flesh, drinking blood, strictly forbidden in the law, speaking in that way would have been considered taboo. I don't think that's probably the primary reason they're upset, but it piles on. So Jesus has this issue on his hands. He's losing followers. The crowds have heard his teaching. They're dispersing or around his disciples as they themselves now start their own grumbling about the things that he's saying. He's not saying the kinds of things that keep the crowd happy, you know? He's not giving the people what they want, so the question becomes, how does Jesus now approach the situation? Does he course correct? You know, does he quickly whip out another sign? Does, you know, the, the crowd's dispersing. Does he panic? And like, oh wait, guys, loaf of bread here. Yeah, watch what I can do with it. You know? Here's where we see the response from Jesus. So, so we see the reaction of the disciples. Now the response from Jesus. And we find in this response, listen, every single thing that Jesus said that they found offensive, his response is now to restate it again in stronger terms. Starting in 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? See, Jesus doesn't placate. He doesn't mince words. You know, and I'm going to have some pastoral reflections about what that means for us. Because sometimes I think we, we try to emulate Jesus in wrong-headed ways. But we'll talk about that at the end. Here, what I want to do is take a look exactly at what Jesus tells them. Because it's important for us. The text says... He knew in himself, in himself, that the disciples are grumbling about that. Same word for grumbling that John used in the text last week to describe the crowds. If you're interested in that, go back and listen. And what that means is that once again, Jesus could discern their hearts. He knew what was happening internally, you know. He definitely could see the offended looks on their faces. I'm sure of it, right? Like he... He sees the way they're responding physically, but um, he can also see beyond their expressions, deeper than their expressions. So he asks first rhetorically, do you take offense at this? It's obvious that they do, right? So do you take offense at this? And then he says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, you are offended at my claims of authority, my claim to come from heaven, but if, you know, if those claims offend you, what are you going to make of it when you see me ascend to where I was before? Okay, what does that mean? Well, this word ascending has a double meaning. And I want, to, I want to draw your minds back to what we talked about on Good Friday. It's a lot like that phrase, um, so the Son of Man will be lifted up in chapter 3 that we really centered in on, on Good Friday. Do you remember? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus draws his attention back to the bronze serpent and says that as the bronze serpent was lifted up, that all might look on it and live, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And, and, and that term lifted up had this double meaning. It meant both lifted up in glory, glorified, but also lifted up at the cross, lifted up in death. And in the same way, when Jesus talks here about the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, 
I think this means both ascending back to the Father, being seated at the right hand of God, seated in glory, seated in power, holding all authority. But he's also referring to the road he's going to take to get there, which is the cross, that he's ascending up to the cross. In other words, Jesus is functionally saying, oh, you think that's bad, do you? You know, you think my claims of being from God are offensive? You think my metaphor of eating flesh and drinking blood is distasteful? Just you wait. Just you wait until the Messiah, the Holy One of God, the Son of God himself, is crucified on a cross, is lifted up to die, his blood shed, his body broken. That's going to be the real scandal. You know, that's going to make these claims that I'm making here sound like nursery rhymes. Wait until you see the reason that the Messiah of God was born into the world was to die on a Roman cross, nonetheless. Then he says, verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. And do you want to know, again, here's another example of what we talked about last week, why it confuses the matter so greatly to say that Jesus is talking about a literal eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood and some kind of like, that he's directly referring to the Lord's table and a real presence kind of view. Because the, you can't do anything to achieve your own life, including the eating of a sacrament, right? Like Jesus is saying here, you, yes, you must come. Yes, you must believe. But this isn't somehow by your own effort or by your own strength. You're offended because you want to relinquish your own sovereign authority and control? The reality is you have no ability whatsoever within yourself to save yourself or to give you life. So you have to relinquish it. The Spirit of God does that work, not you. The flesh is no help at all. And Jesus is essentially telling them, I'm the bearer of the Spirit. I'm the very Word of God. And so the words I've spoken are spirit and life. The Spirit's come upon him, right? The words he's spoken are spirit and life. In other words, you must relinquish your sovereign authority to me. He, he reiterates this offensive claim. If you have any hope at all for life, because you can't save yourself. And it's the lie that culture wants to tell us every single day. That you can save yourself, that you can be enough, that you can do enough good. You can't save yourself. Points us back again and again to this conversation with Nicodemus. In which the spirit is said to give life, Right? He's the one through whom we are born again. It's not us, it's him. It's not our work, it's his work. And, and I, honestly, I think this is where things go wrong for us. Because Jesus says, it's the spirit who gives life. And then he tells us that it's the spirit working through the word of God that brings life. And that's the norm, like, listen, this, this is the normative way that the spirit brings life to us. The normative way that God brings life is the spirit of God working through the word of God. But then... We get this idea that we need to center our church growth on our own efforts and we start to distrust the reality that God's word can grow a church. We act like the flesh can give life. We act like, you know, if our plans are good enough. <laughs> you know, it's not that we shouldn't have plans. It's not that we shouldn't reach out into the community. It's not that we shouldn't build relationships in the community for the sake of spreading the gospel. I mean, there's a reason why we're, Gospel Life Church is going to have a presence at Crystal Frolics this year and host the table. And you know, there are so many different ways that we can think about and be creative about engaging with the community. And we should in order to proclaim the gospel. But there are times in which 
We act like the Spirit's normative means is to use our ingenuity and instinct rather than the the preached word of God, the proclaimed word of God, the ministry of the word. So it shouldn't surprise us then that Jesus says in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus isn't surprised by that outcome, you know? He's not flabbergasted, you guys. The people have heard the truth and are walking away. He's not panicked that the crowd is shrinking. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. That phrase, from the beginning, that could mean from the beginning of this conversation, could mean from the beginning of these crowds following him in chapter 6, but I think it also, I mean, certainly that would be true, that Jesus knew from the beginning of, of this narrative that this crowd didn't believe. But I think it also has overtones of, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The reality that Jesus has known all of this from eternity past, that he knows who are his, that he knows those who belong to him, and that, that knowledge he's had from eternity past. So verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. That word this refers to their lack of faith, their unbelief. Do you want to know why I told you in last week's text that we looked at? And nobody can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father, unless the Father draws him. This is why. Because a lot of you think you can save yourself. And so a lot of you don't believe in me. I also think it's true that one of the reasons Jesus says this, and one of the reasons John records it for the church, is because he wants to prepare genuine believers for the reality that their message is going to be rejected. And the message will be rejected at times even by those who claim to be his disciples. Like, genuine disciples of Jesus should expect that their message will be rejected. That's not a reason to soften up, to change, to decentralize the message of the gospel. And we see that really clearly in the first two parts of the narrative, right? These first two exchanges. Because we see the reaction of the disciples taking offense, finding Jesus' teaching hard to accept for all these reasons. Now we've seen this response from Jesus, how Jesus approaches the problem of those who take offense, which is to restate the things that offended them in even stronger terms. So it, it, it should surprise us even less when we now see, thirdly, the result of the approach. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You know, it's a hard and sad reality that over the years, sometimes even many of our closest friends from within the life of the church will eventually find the teachings of Jesus to be too hard. Not everybody, right? But there are stories in which we see those who were baptized in the life of the church, we built relationships, friendships, and they've, they've walked away. There are guys who I graduated Moody Bible Institute, walked the stage with, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, walked the stage with, getting our Masters of Divinity on the same day, off to, to plant and pastor various churches right out of the gate, who now have found the teachings of Jesus to be too hard, too harsh, too unacceptable. And that, that feeling that it's too hard 
was for many of the same reasons we see in the text, not desiring to relinquish their own self-perceived sovereign authority over their lives, wanting to be able to determine for themselves between what is right and wrong as it relates to Christian ethics, wanting Jesus for the stuff that he offers, but not Jesus as he reveals himself. Essentially, calling Jesus good teacher, but then flatly rejecting his teachings. And so Carson writes this. He says, Jesus' additional remarks have done nothing to remove the offense they have found in his words. He did not expect it to be otherwise and would not shape his comments to pander to their tastes. Whereas F.F. Bruce says it even more succinctly, what they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. Right? And that's because at the end of the day, listen, listen, why? Why is this Jesus' approach? And why is it a, an approach that the church needs to have? Because at the end of the day, it's not merciful to withhold or manipulate the gospel into something less offensive precisely because it's in the gospel that we find the only means of mercy. You know, I think there's an, there's an extent to which we think we're being merciful. And there's an extent to which we might even look at Jesus in John 6 and say, well, why doesn't he, you know, remove some of those offenses in order to keep that crowd following him because isn't that maybe a little bit better? But no, Jesus is being merciful. I mean, we see this picture of Jesus' mercy throughout the chapter, his patience with this crowd of relaying truth to them. But it's not mercy to placate. It's not mercy to, to diminish truth. Not when our very lives hang in the balance. And that's why, why we see now, fourthly, the requirement of Christianity, starting in verse 67. The requirement of Christianity. So Jesus said to the 12, do you, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So, again, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't ask this question, do you want to go away as well? Because he's unsure what their answer is going to be, you know. He's not asking this question for, for his sake. I think it's actually Carson who observes that. That Jesus asks this question more for their sake than for his sake. That is to say, he's, okay, so he's not asking rhetorically. He does expect an answer from his disciples on this question. He's pressing in and he wants them to respond. But he wants them to respond for their sake because they need to be able to articulate the answer to this question far more than he needs to hear the answer knowing from eternity past who are his, right? So um, we're starting to see a pattern here. Peter, Peter's the one who speaks out. We've seen it already, chapter one. See it here. And now we'll see it throughout John. A lot of this is gonna help us make sense of the last chapter together. All right, so let's keep a running tally. But Peter's the the one who speaks out. He says, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You know, and it's actually in Peter's confession that we find, I, I, I talked about disciples and disciples. It's in this confession that we find the markers of genuine discipleship, or at least a couple markers. Because first we see genuine disciples see that, the, come to find, come, come to believe that there is no alternative to Jesus. There's no, there's no gospel alternative. What other options do we have? And there are a couple of reasons that, you know, Peter says that Jesus is the only one to whom they can turn. Because, you guys, Peter definitely doesn't have a grasp of everything. He doesn't understand everything that Jesus is saying about himself. 
But he does appear to have heard Jesus say that Peter can't give life to himself, that the disciples can't give lives, life to themselves, that life comes from the spirit, that Jesus is claiming to speak the very words that lead to eternal life for those who believe, right? So while he doesn't understand everything, he does appear to be believing Jesus on Jesus' terms, not leaving because it doesn't look like the messianic expectation that first century Israel had, you know? And so then he adds, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so in this, there's like, we do see another marker of discipleship, genuine discipleship, I think. Another marker is when we come to see that there isn't this huge gap or lack of correlation between faith and knowledge. Like the rest of the world tells us faith and knowledge are just different categories and in fact like opposite each other, that the faith is actually when you don't have knowledge, you know. Uh, and that's just not the case. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't have Christ, it's meaningless. All truth being his. At the same time, it's possible. I do want to suggest that in this last sentence, and again, this is going to be a theme that we'll see with Peter. There's a, a touch of pretentiousness on the part of Peter. Like, all these other disciples are leaving. And he says, oh, well, we have seen and we have come to know. Where else should we go, you know? He knows better. He's come to, to believe and know the truth. You know, there's some of that with Peter as we go. And again, wait, wait till the last chapter of the book. But Jesus immediately cuts off any impulse to know better. And this is where, this is true for us too because we can read this text and we can, I don't want any of what I've said about, you know, the approach of various churches to come across as this attitude of, we've really arrived at this. We really understand. We really get it. And what's wrong with those who don't? Right? There's a way that we can read this text and come up, have the same attitude about spiritual life and growth. Like, we really get it. We really understand. But Jesus, he, he cuts off any impulse of pride and pretension. Did I not choose you? Right? Peter says, we have come to know. We've come to believe. Jesus immediately, did I not choose you, the 12? And then he says, one of you is a devil. Hey, this is not the time to be high and mighty. I chose you. You did not choose me, not first. You, you know, your choice of, of me is secondary to my movement. I'm the first mover here. And one of you will betray me in the end. In other words, Jesus is reminding them one final time in this discourse that he's their only means of salvation. It's this constant theme that continues to come back in the text. And in reminding them of that at the close of the text, he gives us this perfect place from which to make Reflections, applications for us as a church, for us as Christians. Let me offer four. First of all, our mission at Gospel Life, rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus for his glory and the city's good. So our mission is to proclaim the message of Christ and him crucified, regardless of the folly it is in the world around us, regardless of the reality that it doesn't fit well with Western business models. You know, our vision, our vision is meaningfully and relationally engaging even the most skeptical people with the good news of Jesus. So obviously, there is a sense in which we really desire to contextualize, to meet uh, culture with the gospel in, in ways that make inroads with gospel. But, but listen, listen, that's not what this text is about. So hang on. This is my primary task. The primary role of my ministry as your lead pastor is and always will be preaching Christ crucified. And it should be the primary task of any lead pastor you ever call the Gospel Life Church. 
And that's not an opinion statement or a cultural value statement. We see it throughout the scriptures. I have no other arrows in my quiver, you guys. This is it. This is all I've got. I'll also say that it doesn't just end on Sunday morning. This proclaiming Christ crucified to minister to the life of the church happens throughout the week, and hopefully it's happening in the midst of our body throughout the week. But that leads us secondly, you know, while, while then it seems at times foolish to people in the church and in the world around us that the ministry methodology of centrally preaching Christ crucified actually does make disciples, that it does grow the church, that gospel proclamation, word-centered ministry actually does shape the life of the church. It's true, but maybe not in the ways we envision, and that's where the disconnect is. So Al Mohler writes this. I'll let him make the case for it. He says, when we hear people speak about how to grow a church, few and far between are those who say it comes essentially by the preaching of the word. We know why this is so. It is because growth that comes by the preaching of the word comes slowly, immeasurably, sometimes even invisibly. If you want quick results, the preaching of the word just might not be the way to go. If you're going to define results in terms of statistics, numbers, visible responses, it just might be that there are other mechanisms, other programs, and other means that will produce that faster. The question is whether those other methods produce Christians. Another way of saying this is what you draw people with is what you draw people to, right? Okay. But here at Gospel Life, we, by the mercies of the Lord, we've experienced a lot of growth year over year these last two years. We talked about this at our annual meeting a few nights ago. There's a lot of reason to praise the Lord uh, because our growth is happening in line with this mission. It's our primary mission. It does make disciples. It does grow the church. We should expect people to reject the message, but then thirdly, the reality that Jesus is a stumbling block and an offense to the world, the reality that Jesus is not surprised, the reality that he doubles down here and, and he says the things that offended people even more strongly when they were offended does not in any way give Christians a license to unnecessarily offend others. Like the point here isn't to see how many people we can get upset. Right? So this is one of the reasons why it's so silly to read the Gospels, in my opinion, as a... Uh, Find the ministry methodology of Jesus. Because if that's the case, you know, then we start, how many people can we drive out this Sunday, right? Um, some merit badge for how many people we can drive out of church. But that's not the point. Yes, it's true that culturally speaking, our world is easily offended, seemingly outraged at everything right now. And it's also true, I would say to you that as Christians, we should avoid that outrage culture. We shouldn't be so easily offended because we know that our as believers, our offensive sin was against God, and, that, and he granted us mercy in the, in the midst of that, right? I'm not saying Christians shouldn't ever be offended by anything. Of course not. Only that we should seek in every way to, be, to avoid being caught up in this current culture of constant offendedness, okay? That piles on all the time. But this doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't worry about their own reputation with respect to the loving of neighbor, kindness, Speaking truth and love. Like we should, and we see it in John chapter 6. Like what do you see throughout John 6? Yes, people are leaving, but what's Jesus doing? Like there's so much patience that we've noted week after week after week, right? That every time the people just keep coming back to give us this food. Yeah, but we're hungry. Yeah, but what about the food? You know, and Jesus so patiently continues to lovingly point them and direct them to the cross. He's patient with us. Jesus is a stumbling block, but people should, shouldn't ever be stumbling over you before they get to Jesus, right? Stumbling over me. 
Jesus is offensive, but people shouldn't be so offended by me that they won't even hear about Jesus from me. This text doesn't give a license to offend, okay? And, and I should say that I think it's true, broadly speaking, in Christian culture that we tend to take passages like this where people are offended and leaving and Jesus doesn't care and think it gives us license to do that. I, I was watching this documentary last year of someone who, you know, he claimed Christ, claimed to be a Christian, wanted to be able to display this huge Christmas light display at his house, one of these Clark Griswold flip the switches, the, you know, the neighborhood's blinded kind of thing. And so everybody in the neighborhood kind of pushed back against this. They sought legal action against him, and he called it persecution. But you know, you start listening to the guy, the way that he talked, the way that he talked about his neighbors, the words he would use to describe them, the antics he would use to get his way over against them. And it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly, guy, your neighbors weren't offended by the idea of Christmas. They were offended by you, you know? Uh, you weren't being persecuted, you were being a jerk. And so that brings us fourthly to the reality that the answer to this problem of offense, you know, the answer to this problem of the fact that the gospel gives offense, the, the answer even to the problem of our thinking that we can just come in like a hammer and offend everyone now kind of deal, um, the answer to all of that is found in the cause of the offense himself, Jesus. Just as he prepares his disciples for the reality that people will reject their testimony, out of offense to Jesus when he says, this is why I said it, this is why I said to you, nobody can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. When you understand that, like when we understand that together, when we, when we see that our salvation is by sheer grace, it really does free us to operate in these two distinct ways that Tim Keller was always talking about. First, it makes us humble in realizing that apart from Christ, listen, as we read John 6, we need to understand, right? Apart from Christ, we would also be outraged by these words. We would be outraged at the cross if it weren't for, the, for Christ, if it weren't for his spirit making it, the truth of it known to us. It's, if it weren't for his sheer grace and mercy toward us, right? You can't try to pull a Peter and say, oh, unlike these people, we know and we have come to believe. Maybe that's unfair to Peter, but okay. We can't, we can't try to assume that, oh, the rest of the culture gets this so wrong or these Christians over here, right? Like, because all of it's grace and you'd be in the same exact boat as these disciples abandoning Christ if it weren't for his grace and mercy in your life. So it gives you humility. That humility leaves no room for arrogance. It leaves no room for, you know, offensiveness for the sake of offensiveness. But it also gives you boldness. Because what it means is Jesus has known you from, known that you are his from eternity past, calls you by name to himself. You don't have to clamor for the approval of the world. You don't have to worry about contradicting the vibe of the culture when you proclaim the gospel because your acceptance is found in Christ and so you can boldly go forth and share that gospel knowing that it will be rejected, knowing that you're putting yourself out there, knowing that it can be intimidating to do that, but knowing in the end I'm accepted fully and completely by the God of the universe through the work of Christ. And so it's so important that we proclaim this to one another all the time to gain this humility, to gain this gospel boldness. And so we do that together at the table. 